Almighty God, we are inundated with a plethora, a barrage of messages. And these messages are not of you. And so now as we open and read your holy word, we pray that it would be this message that would give us life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 to 25. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 to 25. And if you have a pew Bible, we are going on to the next page today, page number 2. When you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's holy word. Hear now the word of the Lord. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. 
I'm very happy to finally get to chapter two of Genesis, and I'm going to call the next uh, few sermons on Genesis two and Genesis chapter three, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of man, or in other words, anthropology. You see, on the sixth day of creation, we saw that man, both male and female, were made in the image of God. What does that mean? To be made in the image of God, and how does that separate us from the animals? From the animals, yes, but even from the rest of creation. You see, I believe the confusion that we are faced with today is in answering these questions: Who am I? Why am I here? What am I supposed to do? Who am I? Why am I here? What am I supposed to do? And the answers lie in these next few verses and chapters. But at the same time, we see that when you don't know who you are, why you are here, and what you are supposed to do, we see what is happening today. It's the struggle that everyone is facing, isn't it? It's the struggle that precedes and proceeds from these questions. If you struggle with anxiety, depression, or any other sort of soul-wrenching dilemma in your life, I want to ask you that question or these questions. Do you have the answer to these questions? And the preceding portion to these questions is: If even if you think you have the answers to the questions that were just posed. Can you live them out? Can you live out the answers to the questions that you have? And so it's no wonder the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, "What is the chief end of man?" Essentially, the question is seeking to answer, "What is man?" And so we get into this portion of scripture. After the seven days of creation, verse four starts with these words: "These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens." In Genesis, whenever we see, first you might be asking, "What do you mean by generations? Don't you mean people that had children?" That's what we mean by generations. And yeah, that's true for the most part, except for here. In but in Genesis, the sequence of the words "these are the generations," they appear when it sometimes shows a closing of a narrative, but it always marks a beginning of a new narrative. So when you see the words in Genesis, and you'll see this about a dozen times in Genesis, whenever you see these words, "these are the generations." They are marking a new beginning of a narrative, and here these words mark the beginning of a new narrative. Generations in the Hebrew toledot means descendants or offsprings, but it also means something that proceeds, that comes out of, that comes forward from. So, proceeding the creation narrative, we see something interesting. The heavens in verse four. The heavens and the earth were created, and then it says that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. I don't know if you caught that, 
But it says, the heavens and the earth were created, and then it says, the Lord God created the earth and the heavens. It's almost as if to prepare us for what will be shown in the following verses. In the previous verses in chapter 1, we saw an aerial view of creation, the heavens and the earth. But the latter part of this verse reverses that order, almost as if to show us now we are going to see things from the ground level. And as we've already read, this is quite literally true. Ground is mentioned in the very next verse. What I find more fascinating, however, is that we are introduced for the first time in the Bible the covenant name of God, Yahweh or Jehovah. In your Bibles, whenever the covenant name of God was written, we'll see it translated as Lord, but in all capitals. That means as we go from the aerial view to the ground level, we see the idea of covenant come into play. And now while the word covenant isn't expressly used here, it's not necessary to convey a concept. Just as at the end of chapter 2, marriage is mentioned, even though the word marriage isn't mentioned. Jesus himself, in reference to marriage, quotes the end of chapter 1 of Genesis and chapter 2. In Mark chapter 10, when people asked Jesus about divorce, he would say, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. He's quoting chapter 1. And then verse 7 of chapter 10, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now he is quoting the end of chapter 2 of Genesis. And then he continues, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man, let not man separate. And so we'll continue to get into what this all means as we continue the study into the doctrine of man from these two chapters. But this should also answer the questions, was Adam a historical figure? Was he a real person? Was Eden a real place? And the like questions. And the answer to that is yes. There is no room in the Bible for us to believe that Adam was not a real historical figure. God didn't just figuratively take a hominid and then decide to make one hominid out of tens of thousands of hominids and somehow breathe life into him, and then, but they still all made it and eventually became human. That doesn't make any sense. And then even as an allegory, Adam then, if that, was, if that were to be true, even as an allegory, Adam would have no lasting reference and if that were the case, or relevance, and if that were the case, we are still left in a state of despair and confusion, and we don't have answers to the questions that I posed earlier. But the Bible is clear on this subject matter, just as we've read this morning. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world, through one man and death through sin, and so death is spread to all men because all sinned. It's through one man that sin entered the world. 1 Corinthians 15, 21, 22 says, For as by a man came death, 
By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You see, sin and death aren't simply metaphorical concepts. They are real, physical, and spiritual states of being that has been brought to us by a real human being, namely Adam. Paul recognizes this, and this is what he preaches in the Areopagus in Acts 17. He says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And we are indeed the offspring of Adam, who is the offspring of God, as we also see in the genealogy that Luke gives us in his gospel in chapter 3. But before we get to the creation of Adam, I do want to address something really quickly from verse 5 to 6. Verse 5 to 6 have confused a great many folk because it looks as though it's saying that there was no vegetation when God created man in verse 7. I hear that, especially from other religious apologists, like Muslim apologists would say things like that. What do you believe? Which one is true? And things of that nature. It seems as though it's saying that there was no vegetation when God created man in verse 7. However, we see in chapter 1, vegetation was created in day 3. And man was created on day six. So which is correct? You know, which one do you want to follow? Maybe a question that you also have imposed with. And I want to, I want to answer this question because it will help us to read narratives going forward. It has a lot to do with how you are to read narratives. Narratives in the Bible are always chronologically linear. But narratives are set to show you something. And what is the point of this section right here from verses 5 through 9? Well, verse 4 was the precursor. It was the prologue. And we saw in chapter 1 the view from the heavens. Now we see in chapter 2, we see that the view, we see it in the view of the pinnacle of creation from chapter 1. We see it from the view of man. The creation of man now is at the center of these verses. That's verse 7. It's the center. So verses 5 to 6 is pre-man, and verse 7 is the creation of man, and verses 8 through 9 is post-man. In fact, you can tell it's not chronological because in verse 8, which is after the creation of man, it says, in the past tense, God planted a garden and then put the man in. The past tense planted shows us that God had already prepared a place to put the man that God would create. So the point of this section isn't to rival what chapter 1 says in its chronology. It's to show us now from another perspective the creation of man. But I'm afraid that if you lost, if you get lost and you got stuck on this vegetation part, perhaps you've missed the whole point of these verses because now what is being highlighted is the creation of man. 
In chapter 1, we saw that man was made in the image of God. In chapter 2, we see something more. It says in verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. See, man is the same and yet different from all other creatures. How so? Well, number one, he's the same because he was made from the dust of the ground. Ground in Hebrew is Adama, and man is Adam. Man will be born and live on the ground. Man will die and be buried under the ground. To be made from the ground is by definition to be man, but also to be made from the ground is by definition to be finite. To be finite is a shifting and passing thing. The ground that you walk on today will never be the exact same ground that you walk on again. You change as well. You shift. And later on, we see that because of sin, you will degrade and you will die. This was symbolized in our Ash Wednesday service when you heard the words, from dust you came and to dust you shall return. This is the fate of creatures. The fate of man as well is to return to the dust. However, however, there is another aspect to man. And he is to be different from every other creature because no other creature had this done to him. God would breathe directly into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. Now, breathing is an intensely personal and intimate act. There is not only an act of making, but also an act of giving that God does to man. What does God give man? And it's this breathing then that sets us apart from all of creation. In the book of Job, Elihu gets this in chapter 2, verse 8. He says, but it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It's because man has the image of God, the breath of God, that he is able to have understanding. And this is what Elihu was getting at. And it's this understanding that distinguishes then us from all the other animals. Now, when you put those two things together, you have man. Man is the unity of body and spirit. Both need to be present for them, man to be alive. And it says at the end of verse 7, and the man became a living creature. Life was given to man in a different manner than all of other creation. And that what changed everything, what changed everything was the breath of God. This means that even if you have a body, if you don't have the breath of God, you are not alive. And take the inverse of that. And what you will see that it is only by the breath of God that your life then is sustained. It is, is it any wonder then we understand the word also to be God breathed and we take in his word? Jesus also uses 
this kind of language to signify new life to his disciples when he breathes on them and gives them the Holy Spirit, the breath of God. In John chapter 20, verse 22, it says, And when he had said this, this is Jesus, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And so in one sense, we can then see we have a life through what? We have life through God's life. And after God gives man his life, he then places him in the Garden of Eden. In the Hebrew, Eden means delight. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Bible, Eden is translated as paradisos, which where we get the word for paradise. The Garden of Eden was a paradise that God placed Adam in. And this garden was placed in the east. It's a clear locality showing us that that was an actual place and not just a representative or simply some sort of allegory. And it's important because some of the things in the garden we are to pay attention to, like in verse 9, it says, Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Here the garden is shown to have trees. And what are the trees for? It's for aesthetics and for food. And I, I like that a lot. I like that a lot because... Part of the dish, when you consume it, the way you enjoy it is how you plate it. If it's plated well, you enjoy it better. And so God also plates it aesthetically pleasingly for Adam to enjoy. So the picture that one might see then is that of a banquet feast set before Adam. It's full of food, both good to eat and pleasant in its display. But there is another insertion here. There in the midst of the garden, and it also means in the middle of the garden, meaning that it is highlighted. For whatever reason, this is going to be highlighted, are two trees. And they are real trees. They're not just figurative trees. They are real physical trees. Is the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There are two different trees. They are real trees. And they are in the middle of the garden. And they are highlighted. And so rather than seeing these trees as magical or merely um, just, you know, metaphorical, or maybe even just, they're just, just physical trees, they're like any other tree. That's not true either. Because the trees here are given names to signify that they are going to play a role, and those roles are sacramental. What I mean by that is sacraments like baptism and communion are physical acts that we do that have a spiritual function. In the same way, the fruit of these trees, they aren't simply just fruits for the physical body, but it will, as we see, hold a significant spiritual weight to it. So rather than to see the fruit of the tree to possess a quality in itself, one way to see it then is that the tree plays a part in the opportunity it offers. And as one scholar put it, it's like a door whose name announces only what lies beyond it. Now I'm going to 
skip over 10 to 14, verses 10 to 14. I'm going to do that in part two. I want to go to verses 15 to 17. And after this, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So he plants this garden, puts the man in the garden, and he puts the man in the garden to work it and keep it. This is something that we also should understand. Work is not a punishment of sin. Even before the fall of man, there were tasks to be done. And work here is shown as a gift from God. The fall that changed work then to be more difficult is true. It's true that the fall changed it to be more difficult, but it didn't change the fact that it is still necessary and that it is still to be regarded as a blessing from God. To work the garden, meaning to maintain it so that it continues to flourish, meant that Adam also had to keep the garden. Another meaning for the word keep is to guard. Adam was put there in the garden to protect it from outside intruders, something that we will see in chapter 3 that he failed to do when the serpent entered the garden. But to work and keep is a privilege bestowed on man. It's to be part of God's work, to join him in continuing on what he already started. And it's important to see work this way. It's to continue what God has started. Work isn't something that I created. If you believe that, then your overbloated eagles will incorrectly get what work is about. It's not about lifting up the self. It's about recognizing that it is a gift from God and then rightly give him, giving him thanks for it and working in the understanding that it is something that pleases God. Work glorifies God. Work also, though, on the opposite extreme, isn't something to be despised then. To hate the work week so you live for the weekend is not the purpose of work that God has given man. And by man, I mean both male and female. Work is something that promotes growth. It promotes prosperity. It fulfills God's design. He meant for the earth to mature and grow just like our bodies mature and grow, just like life grows. And one key way that God enables this is through the work of man. Again, both male and female. Paul gets this, the Apostle Paul gets this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 when he says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some of you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Here Paul is referencing back to Genesis, the Genesis command to work. He goes as far as to say, if you don't work, then don't eat. Therefore, don't be idle. And that not only means don't be still, it also means don't be busybodies. Don't run around doing all these things because it's not work. And then he encourages everyone to work quietly and to earn their own livings. 
Stop mooching off of others. Stop expecting your debts to be paid off by others. Don't be happy if the government offers to pay off your loans by taxing your neighbor. Work and earn your own living. This is not only a command of God, but we see it is a blessing of God. It is a gift of God. When you make things grow by working, you start to realize something. So when you participate in what God has designed you to do, you start to realize something, and by working, you also start to grow. It doesn't matter, even from the menial and mundane tasks to perhaps even the grandiose ones that you might see lifted up on the media, all work is meant for you to grow. And obviously, this would exclude work that is illegal or against the laws of God. But generally speaking, what I am saying is work is good, and God meant it for our good. I get that because of the fall that work is harder than it should be, perhaps. But it doesn't mean we don't work. It is a means by which we grow and learn and mature. We see the wisdom of God in his creation when we work. We see how when we produce, we also start to imitate God. And so while you're at it then, if you recognize that work is a gift and a blessing from God, be joyful in your work. If you're eating the most delicious steak, why would you frown? If you know that the work and the ability to work are a blessing from God, why are you frowning? In Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, it says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Many years ago, with the some people here i took a group to tanzania i'm still not sure exactly how to pronounce that country i don't know if it's tanzania or tanzania but it's it's a country in africa and i met a man there who was one of the major donors of the school that the missionaries that we partnered up with had started there so he was a major donor of the school Uh, that they planted, the missionaries planted. And I started talking with him, and he asked me what I did and what kind of responsibilities I had. And after I told him, he, in a somewhat surprised tone, said to me, you must be so busy. You must be so busy. You see, he was a man that was now retired. And now, even if he wanted to work a busy schedule, he couldn't. And he considered my current lot in life to be an incredibly, incredible blessing. He said, you must be so busy, but it must be so good. I wish I could be busy. I look back at that conversation and I think so. I think so. Because there will be a time where you will not be able to work. Thank God then for the times that you are able to work. And here's what I'll add to that. As long as you have the breath of God in you, you are able to work. As long as you have the breath of God in you, you are able to work. I'll get to that concept more later on 
the next sermons of the series, but let's go on to verse 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. After God gives Adam work, he gives him an explicit command. If we saw the decretive will of God take place in chapter 1 here, we see the preceptive will of God being revealed. And the command is what we are all familiar with. I'm sure we have heard this story even if you went to church just while you were young. While Adam was allowed to eat of any tree of the garden, he was forbidden to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And while this command has a negative reinforcement, meaning that he will surely die if he eats from this tree, there is a flip side that Adam would have seen. As long as he keeps God's commandment, he is then maintaining the covenant, and he would not die. This is the covenant of works, as many of you might be familiar with, and it's no coincidence that the Lord God introduces himself with his covenant name in this chapter as he introduces the first covenant, the covenant of works. You know, during Lent, this Lenten season, many of you are fasting. And there is in this season a concept of fasting and feasting that we go over during the Lenten season. You fast from something so that you could feast on something else is what we say. In Adam's case then, it's fasting from this tree would have given him the opportunity then to feast on the tree of life as a reward. And this is true. We see this. Again, I'll, I'll just repeat that in case you missed it. In Adam's case, fasting from this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, would have given him then the opportunity to feast on the tree of life as his reward. We see this in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is called the covenant of works. We see this in the Westminster Confession of Faith, where it says, The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam, and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. But as we all know, Adam did not keep the covenant. He did eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, bringing death not only to himself, but to all his progeny. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil wasn't a good or bad tree. It wasn't necessarily like a pure or evil tree or anything like that. Because we see that everything that God created was good, but the tree that God forbid Adam to eat meant that that tree belonged exclusively to God. Adam then was not to know the difference between good and evil apart from what? Apart from God. Morality wasn't to be known apart from God. And that was supposed to be a part of his faith. By not eating of the tree which God forbade, he would be trusting in God alone for the teaching of good and evil. But by eating it, 
he would declare autonomy apart from God, professing not faith in God, but professing faith in his own self-sufficiency of knowledge. By disobeying God, Adam then fell away from the true understanding of good and evil because how can you understand good and evil apart from God? And that disobedience cost him his life. And while Adam and all those that follow him would be doomed to die, it is only through the last Adam life would continue. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says in verse 45, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And is the man of heaven so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We, just like Adam, and this is what it means, we, just like Adam, have been born into the natural world. It's from the natural world. If Adam had not eaten from the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and even evil, he would have been able to have eaten from the tree of life. But he could not. So after the natural life, Adam and all who follow him would die. But if he had not, then Adam, after the natural life, he would have been able to attain the spiritual eternal life. But that's why this is the good news, friends. The good news that we have is in Jesus Christ. Those that put their faith in Jesus, that believe in his name, receive a new heart and a new spirit. You get a new breath. They take on the quality not of the first Adam who would return to dust, but the quality of Christ who was from heaven. Christ was able to do what Adam could not and complete the covenant that Adam broke. And this is what it means that we have now been engrafted into Christ as he is the vine and we are his branches. Only those that are in Christ then can enjoy life. But the life that I am talking about, the life that the Bible mentions, isn't just long life. Eternal life isn't just different in its length, but in its quality. When we have life eternal, we don't go back to the garden. No. In Christ, the fulfillment of the covenant of works is accomplished and we get to eat the fruit of the tree of life. Eternal life isn't only speaking of its continuity, but its quality. And Christ has achieved what Adam couldn't. Don't you see, if the tree of life is a door through Christ, we can now enter the door that Adam could not and finally enter into the eternal life that God has prepared to us. That means now we get to live we get to do what we were made for and this is our purpose what is the chief end of man man's chief end is to glorify god and to enjoy him forever we get to enjoy god 
So let us remember that we are not offspring of the offspring of Adam any longer, but in faith, we are now offspring of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gives us life eternal. And so let us live according to the faith that God has given us in true obedience and in true joy. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the gift of life that we have. Not only the gift of life here in this natural world, which is an incredible gift, but the gift of life eternal that we have in Jesus Christ. Help us now to reflect this knowledge through the joy of giving you worship all the days of our lives. May this church be pleasing to you and may we glorify you, knowing that we were made to enjoy you forever, glorifying your holy, ineffable name. Let's take this time to pray. And as the word of God has exhorted us, encouraged us, and also commanded us, let us now place our faith in Jesus Christ. And by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, we are saying we will follow you we will obey you. We will do what you say. So let us lift up our lives to God.